Hello everyone, welcome to third installment of Training Chats with Israel and Mladen. In today's episode, we're going to talk shop about uh, periodization and uh, all things related to it. Uh, hello Israel, thanks for joining me today. Hello my friend, it's uh, good to be here like always. I look forward to our chat. So, uh, in today's episode, I wanted to touch uh, on the topic of... Um, uh, periodization, especially phase potentiation, which is a, 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 a one of the crucial concept in periodization. So uh, let's let's quickly define some of the terms. So phase potentiation is the idea that if you do a certain block of training before another block, uh, the effects of the second block will be improved. So, for example, the the most uh, common example is that if you want to improve power, whatever that is, like I'm not going to define that quality at this stage. So let's let's you want to improve vertical jump or power, whatever you want to measure. So the idea is that if you precede that training block with a, a training block directed at improving strength, then the training block directed at improving power is going to have more effect. So uh, the idea is that the sequencing matters. So if you if you set up things in, in certain sequence, uh, you're going to get this phase potentiation. So every succeeding block is going to build up on the previous one and the effect is going to be higher. So, so just my lad and wait, just to, just to clarify something for the listeners as well. So what you're saying is that if I do a block of strength before I do a block of power, that would lead to superior performance or superior improvements in power if I just trained power throughout this whole period. Yes, exactly. So I wanted to okay. I wanted to continue with the example that there are a few studies, usually short term, around six to eight weeks or maybe twelve. I don't know. I need to double check. Uh, what they did uh, is they, uh, they 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 tested exactly what you what you said. So because to, to test if that claim is true or not, you need to have a randomized uh, trial. So one group should should do like strength and then power, another group should reverse, and that might be like a control group only doing power. So then you want to yeah. see if the training effects of the power block are are, are bigger uh, than in in other groups. So generally that's the belief that that's the case. And um, I think that's actually the, the topic I wanted to, to talk today is that I do believe that's the case in a short term, but once you repeat the blocks, like long term, like in a real life and you coach someone for like a year or two, I'm not so sure that the order of the blocks matter when we take only that into account. It matters for different reasons. So that's my, that's my argument here. You have, uh, anything to, to kind of add here um yeah well first yeah like you said it's probably one of the strongest and most important tenets of uh, periodization as a concept so i think that's a a good uh, concept to to investigate and discuss uh both theoretically and the research that's on it and touch about practical aspects um i think you're right what we need to do is to first have studies that look at strength strength followed by power power followed by strength and then just power throughout these two blocks and and also what's important here is what exactly is the outcome measure what exactly are we measuring at the end are we biasing the results by using outcomes that favor one approach over the other 
uh, I think it's it's very important that we decompose this idea to uh, to what exactly are the goals, when we should be looking to do something like that, and so on and so forth. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think we also need to have like a washout period. So you repeat that s- sequence. So the f- sequence will be A, B, A, B for a group one, and then B, A, B, A for a group two, and then maybe all A's or all B's for a control group. Then you check uh, long- longitudinally what's happening with a certain metric. Again, depends on how you define uh, a power as a quality and how you measure it. And then maybe also after a, a washout period, uh, check the effects. And then you can conclude, okay, yeah, the sequencing actually matters. But uh, uh, I think what we can find, like after the first sequence, so after the A, B, uh, the groups will uh, differ. But once you repeat the sequence, the groups will converge to a similar effect. And again, I'm just uh, I'm just throwing things here, uh, you know, just a random 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 stuff, and I'm just uh, how you call it uh, uh, playing with playing with uh, hypotheses and, and things just like a that. thought experiment. Yeah, thought ex- experiment. So not sure if anyone did that did that stuff, but uh, uh, the the problem I have is that uh, people do believe in it. They they think it's a uh, you know. Uh, it's it's a one of the key concept and and here is here's another thing I wanted to to talk within this uh, and I think it it uh, kind of supplements it really well is that let's say you are you are a, a coach that uh, believe in using face potentiation and you have a success with your athletes so you say okay my athletes are successful because you know before I do power training I proceed it with strength training and here are my results and then you are you know uh, proud because your athletes, you know, improved and you probably won a few, uh, championships or meets or matches. And then here comes the, uh, devil's advocate and a contrarian, uh, Mladen, uh, and says like, look, uh, it's probably, it doesn't, doesn't, it's not because of the face potentiations, it could be something else. It could be a third variable involved. And then you, you got all ramped up because I just said like, your training doesn't work. And that's a bloody uh, uh, archetype of all the all the conflicts we have on Twitter between coaches and science and all this stuff. Because if I say that your uh, if I say that it's your training results are not because of the face potentiation, it could be because of something else. You immediately think I'm negating your results overall. So I'm not saying you don't have results. I'm just negating your causal. Uh, explanation of why you have the results if that makes sense i would even say that what you're doing is just possibly because you haven't mentioned yet this third variable and if i will be the one who will expose what we both of us actually think that it usually is it's just nor it's just variation it's not necessarily the the complex biological interaction that one phase follows the other and the importance of having that phase before that one and not the reverse is likely not because of that, but rather because variation is good for the system. But then if you do challenge someone by saying that, then in some ways it could be interpreted that you're taking away their uh, complex explanation to why they're saying a particular effect. And that might be uh, perceived as offensive by some. Yeah, definitely. So what I'm trying to do is to find the most the simplest 
explanation simplest. like Occam razor. So what what's the simplest? Always, yeah. It's always what we should be after. What is the simplest explanation to explain a given phenomena? Man, but that doesn't Go sell on, yeah. books. <laughs> that doesn't sell books. Yeah, it doesn't sell books or or conference talks. So, you know, people like to have this sequencing on, you know, this this four weeks we're going to do this, four weeks we're going to do that and, you know, and uh, as you said, I think all this stuff revolves around uh, uh, the complementary pair that I like to uh, call and people identify, especially John Kylie also identified it as variation and saturation. So you need a, like, if, if training is really saturated, uh, you're probably going to suffer from, you know, monotony related issues. Um, but if, if the training is too uh, varied, then you're going to suffer from, you know, um, from two two varied training, so you you're not gonna get the uh, how to say full adaptation. Effects. Yes, full adaptation. So in my mind, the, there needs to be a balance between variation and saturation, and sometimes this balance uh, is mostly achieved or mostly constrained by uh, by real life. In in what I mean by that is uh, logistics. It's like how much time you have, how much time you can spend on developing certain things, and and so forth. So. And sometimes you cannot afford to to saturate certain qualities as much as you like, as much as you would like in the optimal scenario. Yeah, it's true. I think that uh, you make an excellent point that I fully agree with. I think it does boil down to two key variables. One is variability, and the other is saturation. And you got to find the balance between the two because if, like you said, if you do a let's say a CrossFit style workout in the sense that you vary your uh, workout every single time and you work on different qualities and that's also fine again just depends on your goals of course we should also keep that in mind but if you're looking for a particular adaptation for a particular sport then full variation is not what you should be looking for because you want to saturate you want to develop some expertise in the type of exercises that you do but then like you said if you keep doing the same thing over time you're just going to saturate and you're uh, diminishing returns so you got to find the thin uh, balance point uh, find exactly where it is between variation and saturation and this I think is uh, is out there for the coach to decide based on their own experience but I think working around these two concepts and making decisions based off them is likely uh, a better approach not as complex easier to understand and follow and leaves a lot of room for uh, creativity and um, skin in the game yeah I agree so um I think one one main thing we it's kind of like a how you call it uh, the elephant in the room here, and I I mentioned it in the beginning if you've been following up is that how do we define qualities like you know what's power like and you know how do we define how do we measure it and and I think that's like a big elephant in the room in periodization and everywhere else because we have this I would say really not simplistic but. Uh, uh, like a generally accepted classification of qualities that like physical qualities and then once you define those qualities you approach them as, as certain bricks and then you lay down the bricks in a periodized way so you say okay the phase one is uh, is aiming at two or three qualities then the phase two is aiming at two or three qualities and and so forth so everything revolves around defining 
the qualities you are uh, uh, aiming at, uh, and also defining the the training methods that that are supposed to hit those qualities. And the periodization, the contemporary periodization now, is really really uh, uh, re- linear or le- reductionistic because it believes that there are clearly defined qualities and there are clearly defined methods that hit those qualities. So, for example, mm-hmm. uh, let's suppose that you know if you open any running book. Uh, if it's not uh, Science of Running by Steve Magnus. So if you open any other training book, you're going to have uh, uh, limits or factors, uh, like limiting factors or I would say uh, 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 components of success and things like that, uh, mostly defined through uh, physiological lens. So in the, in the example of endurance running, you're going to have, uh, have a VO2 max as like aerobic power, then you, you're going to have aerobic capacity. And then you're going to have running economy. And these three are pretty much uh, what... These three are like qualities that everything revolves around. And then you have like a sub-qualities. So the training, once you define those qualities, and as we all know, like the first thing in periodization and analysis, it's, it's the needs analysis. So needs analysis is pretty much defining the, the qualities you're juggling with in a given uh, domain. So once you define these three and subcategories, then you proceed to, to make a training. So then you might say, okay, phase one, we're going to emphasize uh, aerobic capacity. Phase two, we're going to emphasize aerobic power. Phase three, we're going to emphasize uh, running economy. And then it looks really scientific because you, you clearly define you know, needs, but every, all this is really reductionistic. It's really linear thinking. And I, to be honest, I, you know, I bloody hate it. Like it took me years to figure, figure this meta condition of, of periodization, like meta periodization, what actually happens in a periodization. So what I'm trying to do now is to kind of have this different look point on, you know, how do we define quality? So I'm kind of, I'm not saying like we should ditch the physiology. We cannot ditch the physiology. We, you know, you cannot run away from physiological limits and biomechanical limits, but there are much, much different things that as a coaches, we can identify it as important qualities that we should be working on. And I think this, this level of the analysis I, I call phenomenological analysis is, is usually the crucial point that, you know, why scientists struggle with coaches because coaches look at things from, you know, complex and I would say, uh, organic viewpoint in this case phenomenological then they identify they identify qualities from something they can observe or feel rather than measure and what i'm trying to do like last few months and i'm going to continue doing is to try to um, try to kind of create this framework of you know redefining periodization overall i don't know what what you know what what are your thoughts about this stuff if you're still alive, um, yeah, oh, I'm alive. Um, yeah, it's it's a complex topic. Uh, I'm not sure exactly. I, well, put it this way: I think that what you're trying to say, or my my understanding of it, is that not everything that we can measure counts. And then there's the other side of it: is not everything that counts we can measure nowadays. So we we're just trying to structure our training models around what we can measure. But that's just a reductionist approach because a lot of things we can't measure right now. So we don't want to ignore them just because of that. 
And I agree with you that uh, many times we measure what we can measure and it's not necessarily clear that there's a carryover between what we measure and what we actually care about. So we compromise. Uh, because we compromise, we might be losing a lot of interesting and complex uh, training approaches and concepts along the way. Not to mention that there's uh, in some of these studies, there's a lot of bias into the outcome measures that are uh, sometimes more specific towards one group. For example, if you measure power after a power phase, it'll probably be higher compared to if you finalize your training uh, cycle with a strength phase. So in some ways, this, uh, these results prove something that in some ways could be a bit obvious because you'll get better at what you train most, that's one, and what you train last. Um, so then if we, there is that tendency, I noticed, for example, when you see all the, a lot of these studies that are comparing heavier weights to lighter weights over time, mm -hmm. but then the outcome measure is usually a one RM. So then I think to myself, well, if you have a group training with between 80 to 95% of their one RM, and at the end of the, uh, the study, you measure their one RM, they trained around that. They're definitely going to get better at doing this than a group that trained with 30 or 50% of their one RM. So I'm not sure that this conclusion is that is not very fair because how about you have an endurance test at the end of an out of a, um, as an outcome measure as well at the end of the study to see if the other group improved as something that they worked on, not just something that is biased towards one group compared to the other. And that's something that I believe we should also keep an eye out for. Because that, that tends to happen in some of the studies that I've um, read. Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, I'll try to I'll try to explain more what I think what I what I refer as a, a, a qualities. And I like, like like I think like for a year I keep telling you to read uh, Zen and the Art of motor Motorcycle Maintenance. <laughs> so oh, man, you you make me feel guilty for years. I'm behind the reading list. So yeah, that book kind of got me into thinking of quality. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna uh, spoil the plot, but uh, uh, the main character Phaedrus or Phaedr, uh, which is from, uh, I think from a, a Greek, uh, Greek philosophy, uh, Phaedr is like a wolf. Uh, so there's a book called uh, Dialogue with Phaedrus. That's like. A, Oh, one of the philosophers, man, brain, brain, brain freeze. Mm -hmm. So anyway, see, this guy's Feder. Uh, so he get, uh, pretty much the, the mental, uh, breakdown when he tries to define qualities. And it's funny because, uh, I hopefully not going to get the breakdown when you try to define qualities in sport, but I, I'll give you, you know, I always use this very simple analogy. Imagine you have two race cars, mm -hmm. uh, and you want to figure out, you know, what's happening. So pretty much you're clueless. So you put them on the, on the racetrack and it's say, let's, it's always one guy driving. So it's same driver and there's no interaction between the two. So it's race. One is racing and then the second one is racing. And then you, you know, figure out the, the times and it might seems that they have the same equal time trial. So what, what, what you're thinking now is like, what are the qualities of those cars that define the, uh, race race time so and then the analysis starts so the first level of analysis i call the uh, uh phenomenological analysis is to kind of just describe what you see with with a limited uh, amount of equipment 
So it could be like a split times on a, you know, how much the, what, what's the time difference on a straight part of the race or the curves and things like that. You get the idea, you know, where, where there might be losing time. And based on that analysis, you might get some type of phenomenological quality. So you might say, uh, race car number one is, is better on a straight line. So it's like a, his quality is, you know, he's better at straight lines. So it's like a phenomenological quality. The second one, the second level of analysis would be to involve uh, multiple testing. So you just constrain things and you might test the cars on a, say, zigzag course or straight line. You want to test the maximum velocity. You want to, you want to test a uh, change of direction, whatever. In this case, like agility, uh, braking and starting and things like that. And then you get this, uh, I call it performance analysis. So from that performance analysis, you get, you get different uh, definitions of qualities. But to do that, you need to have more time and you need to more equipment. So uh, in my mind, biomotor abilities are from that domain. Uh, and pretty much what, what we can do is to have like a bunch of people. We do a bunch of physical tests and then we perform a statistical analysis called the factor analysis. Then we try to figure out, you know, the, the structure of, 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 uh, I would say the structure of those qualities involved. So let's say we have like 100 tests and then you, we want to figure out what tests correlate with, with what test and what test doesn't correlate with other tests. So we get like a clusters, uh, which means that those tests are explaining the same thing, in this case, same quality. So this is quite common in, in psychological research and things like that. Uh, so we get this uh, performance models of, of qualities and th those are uh, uh, biomotor abilities. So the problem with that is that, uh, it highly depends on how you, uh, how you scale and what, what are you measuring and, you know, things like that. So the third level of analysis, now we have a third level of analysis and involves much more, uh, much more expensive equipment and, and digging much deeper. So you might, you might take the engine out and you might test the engine, you might test the braking system and so forth. And I call that physiological analysis. So from physiologic, physiological analysis, you can figure out that, say, uh, a car number one has more powerful engine, car number two has uh, better brakes and things like that. So all these three levels of analysis, in my mind, are important in uh, distinguishing the qualities. Uh, but what I see is that the phenomenological one is completely ditched from uh, from uh, from scientific literature because it's not scientific. Because you, you know, you didn't measure anything, but it's really, you, it's really common in coaching circles. So for example, you might, you're coaching a Muay Thai fighters. You might see that a certain guy, uh, you, you see how he be behaves in multiple fights. So you might say, okay, this guy is really shitty at counter punching. Like, can you measure that physiologically? Probably not, but you saw it. So you, you saw it phenomenologically. And then you define that as an important quality to develop, right? But then you, you might dig deeper. So you might say, okay, why is that? Why is, you know, and then you might perform certain tests. You might say, okay, uh, he's bad at counter punching because if you go really deep, like you might say, okay, one of the reasons might be, you know, perception. He's really a shitty at perception or he's focusing too much on, on, on reaction rather than, you know, the counter movement, uh, or counter punch in this case, or he might lack, uh, say core stability and things like that. So in my mind, things, Things, involve, uh, things evolve from this simple 
idea of what are the qualities in sport. So once I define those qualities, then I can proceed in uh, designing a training to uh, address them. And I, I want you, if you can, give the example of uh, your experience of, you know, uh, martial artist and, you know, physiological tests they did, like how that correlates with uh, level of the level of the fighter. So like, let's say a bench press or power in the bench press or squatting, vertical mm-hmm. jump squatters and things like that. You had a really cool story about this. Well, yeah, first, uh, I love your analogy. I think it's great. And I think it, uh, it also ties well with uh, what I said previously is that we usually measure what we can, not necessarily what we need. And what we need is sometimes what we see as a coach with the coach's eye, but sometimes what we see is so complex that there's no way to de- decompose it into a single test that will measure it. So we just uh, work with what we have, but sometimes we just give too much weight to what we have and we just build things around a test that may measure something of relevance, but it's also losing a lot of other aspects that are perhaps of more relevance, but are currently impossible to test. And uh, But I think it's important that we should mention as well that it might m- may also depend on the sport. For example, if you're uh, a runner or a cyclist or a rower, then the second two uh, factors in your in your uh, example or in your analogy may be actually account for a whole lot yeah. of what explains performance. Yes, exactly. And I think it's important to distinguish between the different types of sports. I would say uh, some sports are more closed loop. Uh, the, they have less degrees of uncertainty. I should I should also add that lately I've been thinking about it, and I think the line that the division between the two types of sports is is a bit more flexible than once than uh, what I once thought. But nevertheless, if we if we group some sports that are more closed loop, they have a clear ending point. It doesn't end before. So running, cycling, swimming, rowing. So the two factors that you've mentioned may account for performance in uh, for a fair bit of the performance. But it definitely not is the case in sports that are a bit more decision making intensive. And I would think that most team sports and definitely combat sports, that this is where I come from, um, the two factors that you mentioned that are a bit uh, taking a look inside the car, which is just some very simple physiological measures, as well as uh, trying to artificially measure some type of uh, physical qualities, such as 1RMs or things like that, uh, play much less of a role in explaining performance. And now going back to the, my experience, um, uh, during my uh, work at the AIS, I had uh, access to some of uh, testing equipment. And I've also coached a lot of uh, Muay Thai athletes and boxers. And I wanted to see whether there are some relationships between uh, punching performance uh, as measured with punching forces and uh, velocities to a whole lot of uh, uh, t- test batteries uh, that we use that are commonly used for just testing athletes, generally speaking. So the isometric mid-thigh pull, counter-movement jump, drop jump, uh, what else was there? Isometric bench press, one-arms, all these things. We, I, I've had a bunch of tests. And at the end of the day, I can also admit that my sample wasn't perfect and so on and so forth. My studies were not perfect, therefore I didn't even publish them. But I as a whole did not find any clear relationships between general quote-unquote physical attributes and and rankings. I mean, this is, I'm talking out of my own experience. I didn't actually sit down and rank them. 
But based on now talking as a coach, I didn't see any clear pattern that emerged from the work I've done trying to decompose their physical qualities and try to see whether that is associated with uh, how good they are. And by good right now, I'm referring to the first factor that you uh, mentioned in your analogy. That is what my eyes can see and what I know about the person. I saw no such pattern. In fact, I even had athletes. I, want, I don't want to use names, but from a different country, from another country that I came in for a visit and they were elite level boxers. They were Olymp Olympians. And uh, some of them had basically no experience in completing a counter movement jump. Because when, when they came in, I thought, sweet, I'll have some uh, subjects I can use for my analysis now because I lacked uh, participants. And then I asked them to, to join in and run through the, the tests that I've conducted. And I asked them to do a counter movement jump. And I was shocked to see that they actually had no experience. They could not perform a reasonably looking counter movement jump. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. These guys are Olympians. They're the best boxers in the world, or some are at, the, at that level at least. And they can't perform a basic counter movement jump. I actually couldn't use their data at all because everything was so novel to them, so extremely novel, the, the general tests, that I couldn't, I couldn't even use it. The correlation would not mean anything because there's such a huge learning curve before we've gotten to the point that their physiology would be some sort of a limiting factor. You know, that, for example, that in their isometric mid-thigh pull, that the maximal forces that they're able to produce would actually illustrate or be representative of their actual maximal strength. That wasn't the case. So, so the outcome didn't really mean much to me. So I actually couldn't use their data. Um, and I think that the, this story, this experience of mine ties rather well with what you're trying to say uh, with your uh, factor analysis. Yeah. What about the, the time when you measure the punching power versus the, say, a uh, bench press and, uh, yeah. and power I didn't in the find, bench press? Yeah. So I didn't find any relationship whatsoever. Whatsoever. I had... Can you, uh, can you just explain how did you measure a punching power? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I, yeah. So we, I had this device. It still exists, I think, in the Australian Institute of Sport. A wonderful and beautiful device that I use for pretty much all of my PhD studies and also to monitor a lot of the athletes I worked with. And this device uh, essentially measures punching forces uh, and, uh, and uh, velocity prior to impact. So two very relevant outcome measures, you would think that are in, in many ways very specific compared to a general test, such as a bench press or whatever else. And it's rather accurate and precise. So we've done a lot of work with uh, technicians over there to make sure it's reliable and valid and all that. We spent weeks working on that. And, uh, and it was very valid and reliable. And I had uh, boxers and kickboxers come in, punch it in a certain routine. It doesn't really matter right now what it is, but they're all single punches. You could just punch it once. Every time was a single punch and you had to punch as hard and as fast as you can. And I'd measure your uh, peak forces and velocity prior to impact. And once I had these results of uh, four different types of punches, which were the jab, the lead straight, the cross, the, the lead, I'm, I'm sorry, the rare straight, a leading hook and a rare hook. So I had values of peak forces and peak velocities for each and every one of these punches. And I could have averaged them, of course, as well. And then I wanted to see if there's any relationship between the counter movement jump, between uh, isometric bench press, isometric mid-thigh pull, drop jump. Uh, what else was there? Um, I think a few more, but uh, right now I can't think of them at the top of my head. But once I ran a correlation matrix, I found pretty much nothing. So there's no relationship or a very weak one. 
I should also note, though, the reason that the study was not perfect is some of them did have more experience than other in the resist in doing resistance training. So that is a confounding variable here, that which which confounded the study. But nevertheless, this was the picture that emerged. There's no clear patterns. I had some guys who who had so much punching forces that was ridiculous, but they never did any resistance training, or they did very little. So their, their jumping performance, their force production uh, uh, abilities were very low. Yeah, their punching performance were, was through the roof. Um, and I definitely had examples like that. And then I had reverse examples, people who do resistance training all day long, but they didn't punch hard at all. So the, a clear pattern was not there. It did not emerge. Nothing even close to it even, I would say. Yeah, that's that's quite quite the story. And uh but I, what I think is like it's like a natural follow-up is this uh, idea of the counterfactuals. Is like what what would have been if they trained, yeah. if that mm-hmm. makes sense, or what's going to happen if they actually train. So, uh, like you, you probably agree with me, you're a researcher. Like if you measure one point in time, you get like a cross study. Mm-hmm. But to get these causal effects, we need to see if we improve the bench press. Uh, will yeah, yeah. will the punching power improve? In, is there any like that type of studies on a training transfer? And and, and to be fair, before I go on, uh, in view of what you just said, that there is a study from Brazil that have done something very similar to what I've done, and they found very strong relationships. But they use a very homogeneous group that they're all very well trained in resistance training. So it's not to say that uh, what I saw is, is truth, so to speak. And then also, of course, there's the limitation that what we've done is just cross-sectional. So we cannot conclude any causal and effect relationship here. You need an RCT. You need one group to add resistance training versus the other one not to and see what happens over time. I'm not aware of such studies. And I should also note that I'm not against resistance training. In fact, I work as a strength and conditioning coach with some combat athletes. So I definitely believe that it has a lot of value, but my opinions may be different uh, than others as to how much is needed. The uh, the way I ask the question is this, is what is the bare minimum amount I can do to get away with to still milk some of the positive adaptations from resistance training without stealing time for, from the uh, specific training? Which to me, I, you know, it's the question of transfer, right? I want to know if doing something in training will transfer into what matters most. And in my case, this is fighting. So I want to know that whatever it is I'm doing in training, both specific and non-specific, will transfer optimally to what happens in the ring. Yeah, right? but I, I think... Now I know... Yeah, go ahead. Go, go ahead. I'll just finish this. Yeah. So I do know for a fact that if I have them do specific training, so sparring or working the pads or anything like that, that will have a very clear transfer for obvious reasons because you're training what you're doing in the ring in a very similar manner. But the further away I get from that to non-specific training, so let's say I get you stronger with a squat or a bench press, I do believe and I have no doubt that there is a positive transfer. But I'm not sure how much of a transfer it is, what extent. And I also got to I have to put on the scales the fact that whenever you're doing something non-specific, that's time that I'm stealing away from you doing specific work. So my philosophy is, of course, it's it's revolves around uncertainty because I'm shooting in the dark. I try to find a, a thin balance that, that I I want them to get stronger, uh, but I also don't want to take too much time away from specific work. And then, of course, it depends on the athlete who I feel and I emphasize feel needs to get stronger, and who I believe and I emphasize believe 
think will benefit more from the resistance training compared to someone else. So this is where the evidence-based approach that we talked about in the previous uh, episodes comes in handy. I just have to make a calculated decisions based on some of the research out there, some of uh, what I see from my own experience in discussing the head coaches and then the, the athlete's perceptions and, and um, what he believes works. For, so, for example, I work with an athlete for, for a long time now, for over three years, and he puts a lot of faith. He really does believe that the S&C work helps him out a lot. And actually, I think it does, right? Interesting enough, because I also believe that the, the faith factor plays a huge role as to whether or not the non-specific work will be effective. So we do a fair bit of that. I mean, I don't know if I would, in uh, other circumstances, would have such such an amount of non-specific work. But so far, we're seeing great results as measured by his record. He's happy. Things are going well. So I don't really see a reason to change. You know? Yeah, that. I mean, I can only do a slow clap after this. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to uh, probably say that both of us are on the same page, and I want to uh, kind of. Uh, 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 specifically state that to, to the listeners that we are not against strength training or by far. I'm like strength and conditioning coach. But what we are against, and uh, probably correct me if I'm wrong, what we are against are the simplistic causal models. So the simplistic causal model is like you have a, a maximum power, maximum strength, which is assessed with this and this test. If you improve that, you're going to get uh, training effects. And that's exactly. bullshit. So I'm, I'm, I'm against that, but I'm not saying, uh, come back to this uh, story uh, that I mentioned before, uh, argument with coaches, uh, fellow coaches, is that because I disagree about the causal effects, causal explanation, I'm not disagreeing of uh, disagreeing with actually doing strength training or general training. So I'm just disagreeing with uh, how you define their role. So in my mind, the role of strength, uh, strength training and, and transfer. So the transfer might not be positive in a way that affects the uh, upside, affects the, the goal quality. It could be supportive. So it could be uh, in a way that uh, avoids the downside. So uh, the athlete might be more robust. You're going to make him more robust so it can withstand the stress, assuming you're not putting extra stress to develop that uh, r r robustness. So uh, and I'm starting to sound like Nassim Taylor, man. It's like even uh. the accent. <laughs> uh, huh. So the, the, in this in this example, the strength could be have a positive transfer, but not directly, but more like supportive in a way that mm. uh, uh, help you avoiding the potential setbacks. So, for example, and this comes back to this idea of the phase potentiation. So, if you have athlete who's stronger. Uh, he might not get the be better effects of the specific training, but he might withstand more specific training because maybe he has more robust and his body is more robust. And when you lift, you get a hormonal response. You, you know, you get a small 100%. spike in a testosterone. So it's like a third variable issue. So, yeah, yeah. and this comes back to this idea of a phase potentiation. Um, uh, what I'm saying is that what I don't agree is that if you do block A and then the block B, uh, that follows up is going to have better effects. I think that's not the case. The case is that with specific sequencing, you're doing two things. First of all, you're avoiding the potential issues. So you don't want to put the, a cart before the horse. So you can probably do, say, maximum maximum strength lifting for an individual. But is it needed? Can you get the similar effects with a lower stress? Probably. So then you're going to do something that's lowering stress, not because you're going to have a 
phase potentiation when you when you do when you actually lift the higher weights, but because you you know you're gonna do uh, I would say minimum damage with maximum benefit. So what's the least I can do that you know push these guys forward without destroying him, but also prepares him for the things that that coming up. And I I think that phase potentiation is pretty much bullshit. And I said it. Uh, it it works not because you 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 make you know block B having more effects, but you are preparing athlete. You are avoiding avoiding the negative side effects. You are preparing the athlete uh, for that block, but you also with maybe lighter block that precedes it. You are actually being smart coach. You're like if you have a recreational athlete and you want to increase his strength do you you know do you need to actually lift over 90% of 1RM weights you know you can do it you can probably get the effects but I don't think it's the smartest thing in, when it comes to uh, negative side effects uh, hmm. so you can get pretty much I would, I would say same effects with less stress and I guess that's the uh, that's the reason why this phase potentiation or sequencing of blocks matters from that from that regard yeah yeah and you know i think i just want to echo what you said before because sometimes uh, i'm really afraid that that's the message that uh, comes across i'm definitely not against resistance training i'm a big believer in it i define myself partly as a strength and conditioning coach but sometimes my view will and, and yours as well will differ as to the role of strength and conditioning and i fully agree with you that there's this variable that it's not directly a transfer but make the athlete more robust or more or less injury prone and all these other factors that are definitely beneficial or for example if i want to get an athlete up to a weight division or so, so there's definitely an important role but the question that leads me sometimes is not how much can we get the athlete stronger and then anything goes to get to achieve that goal because that might require too much time to do one thing and that that may be stealing away time from the athlete doing something that may be more relevant to their sport. My question is, how can we get the maximal benefits while minimizing the amount of time he spends with me doing non-specific stuff, but still doing it? I should emphasize, he still needs to do that for, for various reasons. Um, and I think what you're trying to get to as well is that we got to find a better balance between uh, uh, variability and saturation. And I think at the end of the day, that boils down to our appreciation of the athlete in front of us and all these other factors that are usually not accounted in most of these models, logistics, um, constraints, what the head coach wants, what equipment do we have access to, what the athlete likes and dislikes. We have to account for all these variables that are never present or, or I have not encountered them in many of the models that emphasize just the physiology. And that's never the sole factor that we need to account for when making uh, such decisions. Yeah, but, you know, having said, having said that, I would... As you said, uh, we might come across as that we, 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 we don't believe in physiology or that's, that's rubbish. It's like, uh, you cannot run away from it. You, you know, that's, sim it comes back to the thing we, we mentioned in the previous episode on, uh, on uh, evidence-based practice. You are taking into account what the studies are saying, what the science is saying, and you're putting that into your own context. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just because you said, you know, you know, strength, you know, strength work doesn't work, but it doesn't work for, it doesn't work in a, in a way you, you want it to work. Like, you know, causal explanation could be, could be completely wrong and it could, could work because of the, you know, some other reasons. I call them a third variable problem. 
Yeah, it's a black box, but as long as it works, it doesn't really matter why it works. So the, the, the thing now is like everything is so complex and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it took me years to figure out and I'm still figuring out, you know, how, how should I act in, in type of, uh, in that type of uncertainty? So we can probably continue this talk about, okay, there's a uh, uncertain things, uh, you know, different, there are multiple ways to define qualities. You know, what the hell should I do then now? So we can, we can probably, um, uh, wrap this up and yeah. continue talking about, okay, what, what can I do actually? How should I intervene in a complex system for the next episode? We can even talk about our own experiences. I mean, I know for many times people, when people just criticize, then they get uh, countered with a question. All right. So what do you do? And I, in fact, don't mind sharing what I do. I mean, pr practically speaking, what I do with my athletes, I'll happily share that and the uncertainty involved in, in these processes. And I'd love to hear your examples as well. So I'm just doing Pilates now. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not coaching at the moment. Uh, and when it comes to my training, it's pretty much uh, fucking, fucking around or fucking around Ditis. So mm. uh, just swinging the kettlebell, the Russian style and doing some lifting, kickboxing and that's it. Uh, but yeah, well, I could probably talk about that as well. Uh, people who know me know I, uh, it take, takes me a while to warm up and, uh, stretch the old muscles and old joints. So it's going to yeah. be fun. Uh, anyway, uh, before wrapping up, I wanted to, to touch. I made a, I made a note here while you were talking uh, about two things. You mentioned that depending on a, on a sport, uh, certain qualities might be more defined by physiology. Uh, for example, team sports. And as opposed to say endurance sports, uh, and I, again, I, I like this analogy and I, I like giving analogies because I think it's really useful to kind of convey the message and, and people to actually understand what I'm trying to say. So let's suppose we have those two cars that I mentioned in a, in a few minutes ago, uh, that we tested, but, um, let's say, and we assume they're racing on the same track, right? Uh, but then you have a, a different, different driver. So different driver could squeeze out more juice from the car. So if, if I'm racing a Formula One, I'm probably going to suck. So it's, doesn't matter how much I improve the Formula One, I'll still be a, I'm still going to have a shit time because I'm a bad driver. So I need to learn how to squeeze out the uh, potential. And I, mm -hmm. I guess this comes one example I'm going to give and I'm going to continue with this one is that that guy that you mentioned, a, a boxing guy who's really explosive uh, w when it comes to punching, but shitty when it comes to lifting, maybe, and you said it, that he's not experienced in a strength training, maybe he has this, uh, the third variable that can explain both, but he cannot squeeze that, squeeze that out when it comes to us lifting. So probably if you give him, give him some time, he's going to be able to kind of express his potential in the strength domain. Definitely possible. So, and the another example, again, I'm, I'm switching drivers, but we can also switch cars. So let, let's say we have this car that, you know, that's really fast, um, but then you put it in a city. So in the rush hour, so man, mm. doesn't, doesn't really matter how much horsepower you have. It's like, you, you're going to still be really slow. And that de depends on the context at hand. So, mm. um, and this is also an example from a book, uh, the, the, the book that follows up the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which I actually finished here in Argentina, uh, called Lila. So he mentioned 
he mentioned different types of quality. So it's like a phys- philosophical book. It's, it's really interesting and I, I like it, but I'm not going to go really deep into it. So he mentioned different levels of qualities. So let's imagine you're working on a computer now and the computer is composed of, of all these different hardware and transmitters and chips and all that stuff. But you also have like a, on a higher level, you have a software. So how much is actually software determined by, by the hardware? You know, it's, mm. they're different qualities. So just, yeah. be, just because you have physiology as a, as a background, that like physiology as a hardware doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be completely determining the next level of qualities. In this case, the performance. And mm. the, the more the complex, the more complex the domain, the less is going to affect it. So, um, uh, for, for example, mm. we might define individual qualities. So you take one individual and then you identify his qualities. But let's say he's a soccer player and then you put him inside the game and then you have a completely new level of interactions between the athletes. And that's going to define new level of qualities. So, for example, you might have a... I like to give example of the high pressing. So high pressing is like if you're attacking and in a... In a in attacking third of the field, you lose the game, you lose the ball. So you need to, to press high to try to, for like five, six seconds, to try to, uh, try to take over the ball and you're already in an attacking third and you can continue. But if you cannot do it, then you, you know, you get back to your position, a tactical position. Hmm. So it's like, it's called high pressing. I, I, I by far know like a tactical analysis, analyst or whatever, but the team can possess different qualities, like, on a team level, the team can possess different qualities. So the team might suck at high pressing. Even if the individual athletes might be really good at individual action. So because for a high pressing, you need a team effort. So it comes back to this idea of hardware versus software or different levels of qualities. So just because you define bottom level, in this case, for example, it could be a physiology or it could be individual actions. It's not... Since it, it doesn't completely determine the next level of, of the qualities. And that's pretty much what the book Lila is about. Uh, so something I, I had to kind of uh, throw out out of, my, out, out of the brain and I'll hmm. let you wrap up this episode if you're still, if you're not sleeping. No, no, I'm, I'm with you. Sometimes the things you say take me a while to process. Usually that's the case with you. Um, no, I think, I think we're good for today. Uh, I think we got some excellent topics for the next ones, so I think we'll wrap it up now. Okay, thanks, thanks everyone for listening. Hope you are still awake. Uh, in the next episode, we're gonna continue the talk about uh, periodization and phase potentiation, and uh, stay tuned. <laughs>